Good morning. I'm awake today. Got some sleep. That was good. And uh, I tell you, um, when Joseph was at our church, um, I, th- I think he's been there twice, but he's got some of the greatest quotes. I remember one of the quotes that I've shared many times. I've given credit for it twice. <laughs> God closes one door and opens another, but there's hell in the hallway. Is that original from you, or did you steal that from someone else? You did. Well, I've been giving, I think it. Oh, awesome. Well, I just put it in a book and gave you, gave you, the, gave you credit for it. It's awesome. And I'm, I'm so thankful that you guys brought a chair for me. Uh, I've been trying to get them to do that at home for a while. Just, you know, the crown is just too much, though. I don't know if I could wear the crown. So uh, anyway, we're just having a great time, and Bill and I have been together, I think, we're, I think we're on 32 years together, and yeah, you know what they say, if you endure till the end, you'll be saved. Yes. I've had that struggle with Bill, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, and uh, I'm, my, my wife usually travels with me, she didn't come this time, but we've been married 35 years. I met her when she was 12. <laughs> it's a true story, we got engaged when she was 13. That's a true story, too. I uh, got married when she's 17. We have four grown kids. Uh, three of them are in full-time ministry. How many know that you're in full-time ministry as soon as you receive Jesus? I mean, you may suck at it, but you're in it, right? Lots of, uh, three of my kids managed to get paid for it. And, uh, the church that uh, Bill and I came from, that Bill was the senior pastor of uh, for many years, 17 years, my, my kids pastor that church now. So... There's some good succession planning right there going on, and, and we're all very proud of them. And so, and I have eight grandkids. Wow. And have videos of them in the back, and they're, they're kind of expensive, but I'm sure you'd understand that. <laughs> got, so, got a lot of stories about them. So, um, I, let me just give away something here. Well, I'm going to give away a couple things. I, I asked if this was okay, so I guess this is, no one gave away anything yet, so. I hope this is okay. This is called Life is Messy. And how many of you know that um, if you want to have a supernatural ministry, you need a pooper scooper ministry to go along with it? <laughs> the Bible says, where there's no oxen, the manger is clean, but much increase comes with the oxen. And we're not that far from, removed from the agricultural age to know what's in the manger when the oxen's there, right? So that's a bunch of, right? So, and, uh, you know, a lot of us, we, we hear the... You know, we, out of 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul says, let everything be done decently in order, we misinterpret that. To, first of all, you have to do something before you have to worry about order, right? And if any of you have ever been to a birth, I remember my wife, when she had our first child, she had a 28-hour labor, and we went through a class called Lamaz. You know what Lamaz is? Well, I figured out later on that it's an ancient Hebrew word that means, hey, stupid, what the heck are you doing in here? Because it has nothing to do with childbirth. It's just a way to get you in there so they can torment you with them. And what they do, I'll just give you the short version. They teach, you know, you're supposed to coach their breathing while they're, while they're in labor. And they give you a focal point, like you're supposed to put a focal point up there. We did 12 weeks of classes, like, to teach us this. You know, they were like, worse, you know, you, you watch Never mind, it's just too long a story. Well, we had a Snickers bar for a focal point. And uh, eight hours into the labor, I ate the focal point. <laughs> and I passed out at sight of blood. I can't even gut a fish. So every time when the baby finally came, I kept passing out, and the doctor kept waking me up with smelling salts and Finally, the, you know, they're delivering the baby. And like this, the kid got stuck in there sideways. They had to use like salad tongs to turn it around. It was horrible. And then finally came out and, and uh, it was all, all messed up. It's like it had been in a car accident. The doctor looks over and says, you want to cut the cord? I said, what the heck did we pay you for? And then the, they cut the cord and they hand the baby to me. It's like, I said... I said, man, I waited nine months for this. I wait 15 minutes while you wash her up. <laughs> and then we take her out to see my mom. You know, I mean, she's all, I mean, the only reason we knew we kept the right stuff is one part was crying. And then so, 
take the baby out to see my mom, and my mom looks at the baby and she goes, she looked just like you. How many of you know that God calls that decently in order? And if you're going to give birth to something, um, his idea of decently in order is not our idea of decently in order. And I find that, you know, we have a ministry school that, that um, we planted some years ago, and lots of people want, you know, they come and they, they hear all the principles and then wonder why they go home and it doesn't work for them. And it's because that you, you, you're going you're gonna to have a mess if you want to move with the Holy Spirit. And some people want to have a nice, clean, orderly life, and that's called a graveyard. If you make a rule for everything that can go wrong, pretty soon you got nothing going wrong. Because you got nothing going. So anyone like to have this? I don't know how you do this. Joel, why don't you give this to someone, brother? Oh, you, yes, ma'am. Absolutely. I'm so sorry. <laughs> give me. Almost got you in big trouble, Joel. And uh, I wanna, I'm going to... I wanted to start with this. Let's just pray. Can we pray? Extend your hand towards me and pray this prayer, okay? Say, Jesus, Jesus. thank you for Chris. Thank you for Chris. Help him. Help him. Don't humble him right now. <laughs> Don't let him bore us. In Jesus' name. Okay, I'm going to pray for you. Holy Spirit, I just pray right now that a spirit of revelation would be in the room. Yes, Lord, that you would just, Lord, just have no mercy on these people. Give them pressed down, shaken together, running out all over. Lord, help them to hear things they've never heard, see things they've never seen, so they can do things they've never done before. Lord, we just pray for that, Lord, that they would just be commissioned to absolutely turn the world upside down, as they said in the book of Acts. That's our mission. Amen. I just, I want to read you um, just a about 40 pages of this. <laughs> I want to just read you a page of this because it's kind of where we're going today. And uh, this is a book I wrote called Developing a Supernatural Lifestyle. And it's about developing a supernatural lifestyle. <laughs> That's why I named it that, by the way. It's pretty deep, actually. The publisher's all, well, what's the book about? I'm like, Developing a Supernatural Lifestyle. They said, well, what do you think you should call it? I got an idea. Why don't we call it developing a supernatural lifestyle? (laughs) So let me just read you a page or so. Every so often in the course of history, there are individuals born who defy common reason and statistical explanation. These are the great ones who break the tether of their generational expectations and rise to the high call that seems to echo somewhere far beyond the grave. The prophets of old peered into the future and spoke of these violent ones who would force their way into the kingdom, take hold of heaven, and pull it down to earth. These reigning saints refuse to have their exploits be a mere reflection of the past, but instead they break the gravitational barriers of naysayers and doubters, journeying far beyond the boundaries of reason into places where no one's ever gone before. Ultimately, they capture the prize of the upward call of God that lies in Christ Jesus. These are God's history makers, the Lord's chosen people, His mighty men, His holy nation. Many of us can feel the vacuum of this vortex drawing our hearts in this divine destiny. We, are, we find our inner man longing, stirring, burning for the great adventure. Live or die, we must press through the walls of mediocrity and find the promised land of our souls. We live with a passion to be numbered among those who have gained fame in the halls of heaven and are numbered among the prison guards of hell. We're feared among the prison guards of hell, not numbered among them. That was a typo. If we're going to walk as God's ruling royalty, it's encumbered upon us that we pray unceasingly, give sacrificially, dream unreasonably, serve wholeheartedly, love unashamedly, walk innocently, believe undoubtedly, and live powerfully. These are the qualities of the bride of Christ in all her glory. She's called to be the most creative force in the face of the earth. Yet, um, therefore, we must not allow ourselves to become known for our boxes that is famous for what we don't do because of our righteous constrictions. Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, and Benjamin Franklin had certain moral values that restrained their behavior, but they were famous for what they did, not for what they didn't do. It'd be tragic if the most creative people on the face of the earth allowed themselves to be reduced to rent-a-cops guarding a box, the Ark of the Covenant, that God vacated more than 2,000 years ago. The truth is, if we don't take our rightful place in the earth, 
We'll relegate sinners void of the mind of Christ, barred from the wisdom of the ages and wandering in utter darkness to being the, most bright, being the brightest minds of our time. If the brightest light in this world belongs to those locked in darkness, how great would the darkness in our world be? Something's fundamentally wrong with this picture, but this is our brain on religion. Religion is like kryptonite to Superman. Religion can conform the most righteous reigning saints into mindless zombies, puppets, repeating someone else's convictions they don't even understand themselves. Let me just read you just a paragraph at the end. The world's crying out in distress, and we must not miss this Kairos moment, the opportunity of the ages. In the late 60s, the Beatles took America by storm. In a few short years, the four boys from Liverpool altered the course of our nation's history. Soon after, the world was swept into the wake of their anointing. And all the while, the boys were singing, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't long before the Fab Four started to experience a crisis in their own souls. And they began to cry out in desperation, singing, help. I need somebody. Help. Not just anybody. You know, I need someone. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anyone's help in any way. But now those days are gone, and I'm not so self-assured. Now I find I've changed my mind, and I've opened up the door. Help me if you can. I'm feeling down. I do appreciate you coming around. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please, please help me? John Lennon wrote that song when he was hooked on heroin. He said he used to sing it to himself to find freedom. And I'll just read you this one more paragraph. But their cry for help fell on deaf ears in the sanctuary of hope, and soon they were calling Hare Krishna their sweet Lord. The church can't afford to fall asleep in the harvest today as we've done so many times in the past. We are not supposed to reflect our culture. We've been commissioned to transform it. And I, um, you can take that. I want to um, talk to you this morning about, uh, about that very thing. You know, <clears throat> I feel like we need to realize that we're in the second greatest transition in human history, in my opinion. The first greatest transition in human history was the cross. Obviously, the cross divided history from... Um, you know, B.C. to A.D. But I believe that we're in the second greatest transition in human history. And I think it's really important. See, the sons of Issachar, one of the most quoted uh, verses that I I hear in conferences, is it says the sons of Issachar, they understood the times and they knew what Israel should do in the times. And I believe that the two of the most important things that we need to learn is what time is it and what are we supposed to be doing in the times? Um, and you know what an epic is? An epic, according to the scripture, an epic means there's two words for the word epic. E-P-I-C, which means huge, great, enormous. And E-P-O-C-H, which means a way in which God deals with a certain people in a certain time. A way in which God deals with a certain people in a certain time. A great illustration of that is when the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan River. Now, I went back and read it recently it says when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River that the manna ceased, the cloud went away, and the fire was gone, and God said, welcome to the promised land. Now, I just kind of picture, it doesn't say, I went back and reread it, it doesn't say that God told them that the manna would cease, it just says the manna, would, the manna ceased. And I just have this picture that when you've been living on manna for 40 years, and remember there was only two people that crossed over the Jordan that were actually not born in the wilderness. Everyone else died off. So the people who crossed over the, the Jordan River, they were all people who were born in the wilderness. The only thing they had known is manna. Now, how many of you know that when you cross the Jordan River and the manna ceases, if you were the gold medal Olympic two-time world champion man- manna gatherer, you don't want the manna to cease when you get in the promised land because your identity is in the manifestation instead of the God. And so, you know, part of the struggle as we move into this new epic season is the greatest resistor of the new thing are people who succeeded in the old. And I believe that, I believe that we've crossed over the Jordan River. Now, you understand that when they crossed over in the Jordan River, in the visible empire, they really did cross the Jordan River. I'm not saying it's a metaphor or anything like that. But when they crossed over the Jordan River in the visible realm, they actually crossed over into a new epic season in the third heaven, in the invisible realm. In, a way, in other words, remember, an epic season means a way in which God deals with a certain people in a certain time. 
When, when they crossed over the Jordan River and God went from doing miracles to them to doing miracles through them. But you can kind of picture what would happen when you wake up the first day and there's no manna. And day two, there's no manna. Day three, there's no manna. And God had required them to fast in the wilderness. So you can imagine that they're probably thinking, well, we're on a seven-day fast. Until you get to day eight, there's no manna. Day nine, you get the point. Day 14, there's no manna. Day 15, well, we're on a 21-day fast. Day 22, no manna. We're on a 40-day fast. Day 42, there's no manna. And that's about the time where Mary turns to Joel and says, well, you, you need to get a job. That's why they're worth the book of Job in the Bible. And Joel goes, what's a job? Because Joel's never had a job. See, they lived on welfare the whole time in the wilderness. All they did was gather manna, never had a job. And what I'm getting at is, th- is this, is that Isaiah 42.9 says, The former things have come to pass. The former things have come to pass. Behold, I proclaim new things to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. Now I understand, I, I believe that scripture has dimension. So on one hand, I'm sure that Isaiah is saying, sing to the Lord a new song. And he, he talks about the praise of the end of his earth. But I also believe that, that scripture has dimensions. And if you look deeper, that there's other meanings behind the prophet's words. And you'll see that Jesus oftentimes will take a scripture, like in the, in the book of Isaiah, and he will quote that scripture completely out of context. At least out of context of what the prophet thought he was saying. And yet God said, no, I wrote this to have dimensions to it. So it meant that in this season, but it means this in this season. And here, I think that when the prophet said, the former things have come to pass, behold, I proclaim new things, sing to the Lord a new song. I don't think he's just talking about singing a song. I think he's using it. I think he's using the word song as a metaphor to mean, listen, you're coming, the former things are past. Listen, you crossed over the Jordan River. You're out of the wilderness. You know, you went from the land, you went from the land of not enough to the land of just enough, and now you're going li- to live in the land of more than enough. And you're going to go from give us our daily bread into a legacy, <laughs> leaving a legacy. So you can only live for, see, when, you get, when your food only lasts one day and you can't store it for two days, you don't live for anything besides today. Then God says, listen, you're going to, are you getting this? You're going to, listen, I want you to live, for, I want you to live to leave a legacy. And so they're, they're, they need a new way of thinking because they've come into a new season. Are you following me? And so I believe that we, we've come into a new season and it requires a new way of thinking. And uh, it's interesting the way he demonstrates it with song. He says, the former things have come to pass. Behold, I proclaim new things. Sing to the Lord a new song. In fact, uh, I thought that Bishop was going to preach my message for a minute. Because um, in, uh, in the Bible somewhere, in Luke chapter 7, verse 31, Jesus says this. He said, John sang the dirge, and you did not mourn. I played the flute, and you did not dance. Now, how many of you know that it's never recorded that John actually sang the dirge? You know, the dirge is the funeral song. Or that Jesus actually ever played a flute. In Acts uh, chapter 19, I think this is what Bishop was quoting this verse, where Paul meets these believers and he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? And they said, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. He says, well, what baptism were you baptized into? And they said, John's. I'd like to propose to you that most of the church has been baptized into John's baptism. They're still singing the dirge. Been baptized into the wrong baptism, and they should be. Listen, what did, do you know what, what did Peter wear for clothes? Do you know? The Apostle Peter. You don't know because it's not mentioned. You know why it's not mentioned? It's not important. But what did John the Baptist wear? He wore camel's hair and he ate what? Honey and locusts. What did, where did he preach? In the wilderness. What did Jesus wear for clothes? You know because the soldiers gambled for it because he wore a seamless garment so expensive that, it was, that they, they didn't want to tear it because it wasn't worth anything torn. And what was Jesus' first miracle? He made wine for people who were already drunk. 
By the way, that is what the original language says. He made wine for people who are already drunk. Now, do you understand? Jesus said, John played the, sang the dirge, you didn't, you didn't mourn. I played the flute, you didn't dance. Can you see the contrast? That how how did how did John how was John executed? Isn't it interesting that everybody with, like in Jesus's day, execution came through crucifixion, crucifixion. Even the thieves, even thieves were crucified. But how was John how was John executed? His head was cut off. Why? Because John remember Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets and John was the last prophet of an old covenant that way of thinking needed to be cut off and I believe that we've that God I believe that that we we have stepped into a new epic season and it's time for us to have a new way of thinking if you will the song has changed Something has changed. The song has changed, and we, we need a new song to go with a new season. And there's a lot of people that have come in to a new season, but they have First of all, we have to understand what season we're in. What is the season we're in? And next, we got to know, okay, what song goes with this? In other words, you understand, what skills do I need to learn to live in this new land? Because the skills that I learned in the, in the, old, in the, in the wilderness, they won't even work in the promised land. I don't mean that they won't be very profitable. I mean, there is no manna in the promised land. It doesn't matter how good you got at cooking manna, because those skills, will not, they're not even going to be helpful in this new, in this new season. <laughs> there is a lot of people eating manna by faith. I love this quote. It's one of my favorite quotes right now. Eric Hoffer said this, In times of change, learners inherit the earth while the learned find themselves beautifully prepared for a world that no longer exists. I'll say it one more time. In times of change, learners inherit the earth while the learned find themselves beautifully prepared for a world that no longer exists. You know, we, we have to ask ourselves questions Isn't it interesting that the Pharisees who knew the Bible memorized the first five books of the Bible when the author's standing right in front of them, they don't know him. (laughs) Selah. If knowing the Bible and and knowing God were synonymous, the Pharisees would have rocked. It's important that we realize that the goal of the Bible was never to be memorized the goal of the Bible is never to memorize the Bible. It was to get to know the author. I would propose to you that all of the Bibles in the kingdom, but not all the kingdoms in the Bible, that God's actually bigger than his book. One of the reasons why the Pharisees missed Jesus, now I understand this is a lot more complicated than this, and I think when we preach, we make things really simple, and people go away, and like, yeah, you know, we have one-word answers and one-line answers for things, and, and how many of you know that that doesn't always work? Somebody, you know, I've heard people preach, you know, all the answers for life are in the Bible. That's not true. That's not true. All the answers for life are in the author. You know, am I supposed to go to Africa? Or am I supposed to stay home and have kids? Well, you can't read the Bible and know the answer to that. But you can get to know the author. The goal is to get to know the author. Listen, it doesn't say that the, that the Bible will lead you into all truth. It says the Spirit will lead you into all truth. The goal of the book is to get to know the author. You know, one of the reasons why the Pharisees missed Jesus is because they didn't understand that there was a first and second coming. No, I understand there's other reasons. In other words, they read the Old Testament's all they had. They read the Old Testament, all the prophecies about the Messiah, and they can't figure out how the Messiah can 
in other words, there's no, there is no scripture in the Old Testament that says, okay, the Messiah is going to come and then he's going to die and then he's going to come back and then he's going to set up his kingdom. There's just scriptures about the Messiah dying and there's scriptures about the Messiah having a kingdom and they couldn't figure out how to reconcile those so they put them into one epic season. So part of the struggle is, remember every time Jesus would go towards Jerusalem, what would they do? They'd put down palm branches and try to make him king, like you guys have tried to do with me today. (laughs) What I'm getting at is that one of the reasons why they couldn't receive Christ is because they misunderstood the times. (laughs) One of the things that we have to understand, this is a side note, But there's a difference between the last day and the last days. We do not live in the last day. We live in the last days. The last day, Malachi, is called great and terrible. The last days, Acts 2, 17, 18, and 19, are called great and glorious. The last day is called the day of judgment, and you won't be the judge. The last days are called great and glorious, And their days and the ministry that we have is ministry of reconciliation. You know, um, it's 2 Corinthians 5.17. We love this verse. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things become new. The next verse says, And God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How did he do it? Not counting their trespasses against them. What's the next verse say? And God has given us what? The ministry of what? Reconciliation. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Is it on? Okay. Good, because I probably didn't get it quite right. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation as if God was begging through us to be reconciled to God. What is the ministry of reconciliation? Not counting their trespasses against them. What is the epic season we live in? It's the epic season of the last days, which are great days, days, multiple days, which are great and glorious. What is our ministry? The ministry of reconciliation. There's coming a last day, it's mentioned seven times in the New Testament alone, and the last day is called a great and terrible day, the day of judgment. That You won't be involved in that ministry. God will be. That's just a Selah. There's a whole bunch of prophets that don't realize they're living in the wrong epic season. They're either living in John's, which he was beheaded. Remember why he was beheaded? Think through that. I won't go there. He had a bunch of people mad at me. For telling the king that he was sinning. Lost his head over it. I have no point there. I, I want to I describe some of the epic season changes. Now, this, I have hours and hours. I have 14 hours I teach on this, and I have 24, point, 24 minutes and 32 seconds left. So, here's, here, I want to just give you a few, like, what's it look like? Like, when they crossed the Jordan River, the manna ceased. The fire was gone. The cloud was gone. Okay, so, those were signs that they're in a season change, right? And then also, the signs on the other side of the river is that God began to give them prophetic declarations about taking nations. About taking nations. Going after cities, right? Okay, so I wanna, I wanna just share with you a few things that I see, and this is, I'm just hitting a few high points. The first one is, I'm laying on the floor 14 years ago. This is the first year I was at Bethel Church. And the Lord said to me, we're moving from denominationalism to apostleships. Ask me what that means. Now, I know that that had to be God speaking to me because I have a high school education. I can't even spell words that long. <laughs> so, and so this, this, is, this is the way, a little insight in my own life. This is the way the Lord speaks to me. He will make a statement and then he will tell me, Ask me questions. And it's been like that all my life. So he said, we're moving from denominationalism. By the way, I'm, I'm ex- it's the ism. Not denominational. Denominationalism. I think ism is a spirit like communism. 
He said, we're moving from denominationalism to apostleships. Ask me what that means. I said, what does that mean? He said, in denominationalism, people gather when they agree and divide when they disagree. He said, you're a Protestant. You were born in a protest. You realize that we were born in a protest, not over social justice issues or moral issues. We were born in a protest over how we interpreted scripture. I'm not making any judgment whether we should have left or not. I'm not that smart. I don't know enough about church history to actually have an opinion about that. No, I mean it sincerely. So, but the point is, is that we're Protestants. Originally, the first, originally we were called Protestants because the word meant protestant, but within a year it meant protester. And so we, we gather when we agree, and we divide when we disagree. And he said, but, so he said we're moving from denominationalism to apostleships. And the Lord said, in, in denominationalism, people gather when they agree, they gather around truth, and they divide when they disagree. He said, but we're, we're moving from that to apostleships where people rally around fathers, family, and mothers. Are you with me? And the Lord said, I'm about to pour out revelation on this generation. Listen to this. I'm about to pour out revelation on this generation that's been held in the vaults of heaven from the eons of ages. Even the angels themselves long to see what I'm about to pour out on this generation. But he said, if I pour out new revelation on the wineskin that people gather when they agree and they divide when they disagree, I will rip the wineskin because the nature of revelation is that at least for a moment we don't agree. Are you following me so far? So, uh, in fact, let me just give you an example. What do they call, what do the Catholic Church, listen, I'm not Catholic, but we, we have to be careful how we talk about our mama, though. I mean, your mama may be ugly, but you, you watch out how you talk about your mama. Right? So you don't let anyone else talk bad about your mama. And if you don't think the Catholic Church is your mama, then you just don't know history. So, but what, are the Catholic, what does the Catholic Church call their individual leaders of their churches? Father. How many times does the Catholic Church split? I said never, but a Catholic historian wrote me about two years ago, and she said three times. I'm like, okay, three times. <laughs> How many times does the Protestant Church split this month? <laughs> okay, now think about this. Are, are you with me so far? Think about this. How has this affected us? How has this affected us? What do you have to do in a Protestant church? What do you have to do? Okay, now think. This is really simple. I'm not, I'm not being deep here. So some of you are like, okay, there's some like really deep, hidden, mystery, mysterious answer. No. What do you have to do to split a Protestant church? Okay, you have to disagree. Okay, great. What do you have to, to disagree? What do you have to have? You have to have an opinion. In order to have an opinion, what do you have to do to have an opinion? You have to think. You wonder why the people that have the mind of Christ, the wisdom from another age, right? Who have the gift of wisdom, that's a different dimension of wisdom, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're seated in heavenly places, right? Revelation 4, John, the apostle John is invited. Jesus says, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. So we have heavenly perspectives. We can see into the future because we're seated in the third heaven. Are you with me? The creator lives inside of us. We are actually the house of the creator. That's right. I, I want to ask you, uh, those, those are five dimensions, and I think there's eight that I counted. There's five advantages right there that you have, that I have, over someone who doesn't know the Lord. Are those things philosophies, or are they realities? If they're realities, then you have to ask yourself a question why we aren't leading every realm of society, every innovation, and every invention. If the guy who created everything lives inside of you, then just that, just that alone. Why, and, and if you think that we are leading every innovation in creation and in, invention and sphere of authority, then you are living in some level of denial. Because yeah. that doesn't happen to be true. 
It happened to be true in the agricultural age. It happened to be true in the industrial age. If you, if you do, I, 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 I love history, not church history so much. I love history and I love leadership. In the, industrial age, in the agricultural age and industrial age, it was Christians who were the head of inventions and innovation. But in the information age, we are not. You have to ask yourself a question. If the brightest minds in the world are sitting in the seats that you possess week after week, then why are we not leading every realm of society? And then you have to go back to the question, are those things philosophies or are they realities? And if they are realities, then why is it that the brightest people in all of the the world has ever seen since the days of the resurrection, since since we became a born-again creature, you know the word new creation means it means beings that have never before graced this planet. The word new there means it means it doesn't mean new like you got a new car. It means never before created. We became the first creation to ever live in two dimensions simultaneously. We live in heaven and on earth simultaneously. We actually have dual citizenship. Paul argued that he was a citizen of Rome, but he's also argued that he was a citizen of heaven. We have dual citizenship, we have dual responsibility, and the question is, are we living from earth to heaven or from heaven to earth? Okay, so let's get back to the question. If we have, if the brightest people that have ever graced this planet are sitting in those chairs, then why is it that we're not leading every realm of society? I have an answer. I don't know if I'm right. But I think I am. It's because we've been taught to not think. Thinking, thinking is an enemy to denominationalism. Thinking divides the church. So we as leaders have taught people what to think, but we've not taught them how to think. Bill started to talk about this last night, or you did in some ways. It was Jesus tells his disciples, sell your coats and get swords. So, you know, you know what happens. They, they find two swords. They go, well, we, got, we found two swords. And Jesus said, that'll be enough. And we don't know who got the other one, but we know who got one of them. It was Peter. Of course. And a few hours later, they get attacked. And so Peter pulls out the sword. Now, in Luke, 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 um, Luke says that one, the other guy who got the sword, who he doesn't name, asked Jesus, shall we use the sword? Peter evidently wasn't in on that conversation. <laughs> and he takes the sword, and what does he do? Yeah, he, and you know, he's a fisherman, man. He ain't good with swords. You know he's aiming for the guy's head. And he, just, and he cuts the guy's ear off. So I, I'd like to propose to you that we've been doing that for years with our sword. And Jesus goes... Peter, what the heck? Sorry about that behavior. (laughs) Peter puts the guy's ear back on. Peter, what are you doing? You said get swords. (laughs) Three hours ago, you said get swords. I never told you to use it. See, it doesn't occur to us that, that God would create opportunities he doesn't want us to take. And Bill alluded to this too. In, in, you know, John 2, Jesus makes wine, but he makes wine for people who are already drunk. See, if you look at most of your translations, they try to translate that out of the, because of the, the translators can't figure that out. Well, Jesus wouldn't be promoting alcoholism. No, no, but the only way you can get a reward for doing something right is to have the opportunity to do it wrong. See, religion cuts the second tree of the garden down. We t- we, we're not getting this. We take away people's choices and we call that revival. And we wonder what, see, we've domesticated the lion of the tribe of Judah. Is if you train in the zoo, you'll be irrelevant to the jungle. Isaiah 60 doesn't say, Arise. And reflect. 
It says arise and shine. It means you have to be an original. See, in, <laughs> in John 15, you know the scripture well. Jesus said, I no longer call you, come on, slaves or servants. I no longer call you slaves, for a slave does not know. Okay, I'm telling you, this is a transition we're going through. What's the first transition? Instead of gathering around truth, we're gathering around families. What does that do? It creates a foundation for revelation. Then Jesus says this. He says, I no longer call you slaves because a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends for all things. Everybody say all things. All things I've heard from the Father I've made known to you. See, revelation was never to be the child of laborious study. Revelation was to be the offspring of an intimate relationship with the Creator. I no longer call you slaves. Remember, I did call you slaves. Remember, Romans 6 says that we were slaves to sin and now we became slaves to righteousness. So we started out our relationship with God as a slave. And remember, Jesus said, I no longer, in fact, the, the preceding verse is, you are my friends if you, do what I, if you do what I command you. So you first have to learn how to be a good slave. And remember that slavery, the, the highest core value in slavery is obedience. So what do you learn when you come to Christ? The first thing you learn is to be obedient. It's called being led by the Spirit. Now, we never lose that, right? We never lose being led by the Spirit or we're not sons of God. Are you with me? But my point is, is that the emphasis is on do what you're told. <laughs> do what you're told. You're in a season. You, when, you, when you become a new, a new believer, and every new believer needs to first learn how to do what they're told. You can't be a friend until you can learn to do what you're told. But once you learn to do what you're told, then God goes, listen, now I want you to be my friend. See, I'm not, I don't want to marry a slave girl. I'm moving from slavery to friendship to matrimony. God's wanting to marry a, a Proverbs 31 woman. He's not wanting to marry a slave. Okay, now follow me. So he says, I no longer call you slaves because a slave does not know. What is the fruit of slavery? Ignorance. You don't know. I propose to you that most of the Protestant church has stayed in slavery. Why don't we do have great inventions? Because we're leading slaves. And we lead them like slaves. Why? Because if we get them to think, we realize that the reason why they came to our church is because they agree. We call it the unity of the Spirit, but it's actually the unity of the Word. There's no verse that says, and I want you, it's, it says preserve the unity of the Spirit. It says that the fivefold ministry is, is the combination, the fruit of it is the unity of faith, but there's no, there's no verse that says, I want you to be unified around the Word. That's the way, that's what we read into it. How many of you know that you don't just talk with an accent, you see that with an accent? You read the Bible with an accent. And I'd propose to you that we all have denominational glasses on when we read the Bible, that we read into the Bible that there is no dissension in the Bible. There's no arguments. We can't figure out, see, and we think, we think, you know what, if we could get churches to get along, we would, we would rock our city. Jesus couldn't get 12 guys to get along. And you go, oh, that was, when they, that was before they were born again. Look at the book of Acts. They still argued constantly. What's the, what's the point? And, and, and what does, what's the commentary on those guys? Those who turn the world upside down have come here. We, I'm not saying people should argue. Don't misunderstand me. I'm saying that conflict, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Conflict is a sign that you have a real relationship. Okay, I got, I got to finish. So here's my point. Slavery means I don't know. Friendship means I have revelation. Are you with me? Great example. 
Pharaoh, this is Genesis 41. Pharaoh has a dream. Remember the dream? Fat calf, skinny calves. Sorry, for sake of time. Fat calf, skinny calves. Remember this? Joseph has a dream. Remember, Joseph has a dream. He has a dream he's going to be great. Pharaoh has a dream. How many know that if, if Pharaoh, if Joseph didn't dream, Pharaoh died die in a famine? How many know that if Pharaoh didn't dream, Joseph died in prison? Okay, here we go. Joseph had a dream. Pharaoh had a dream. Pharaoh has this dream. Joseph comes in and interprets a dream. For the sake of time, the fat calves are seven. Seven fat calves are seven good years. Seven skinny calves are seven bad years. The fat, the fat calves are going to eat the skinny calves, right? Okay. No, the fat calves are going to eat the skinny calves. That's true, isn't it? Skinny calves are going to eat the fat calves. You get the point. Thank you, though. I'll preach this message if you don't mind. <laughs> okay. Them calves are going to eat each other when it's all over. It's all going to balance out. Okay, but listen to this. Joseph interprets the dream and tells the king, listen, those seven uh, fat calves, seven good years, seven skinny calves, seven bad years, this is what I would do if I were you. I would take one-fifth, 20% of all the grain every year in Egypt, and I would store it in the seven good years. And then in the seven bad years, I would sell it back. Now, who knew about the interpretation of the dream? Joseph and who else? Pharaoh. Who did Joseph tell? He only told Pharaoh. What happened? In the 47th chapter, by the fifth year, all of the people of Egypt are out of grain. All of them are out of grain. And they come to Joseph and they say, listen, we're out of grain. It's only the fifth year we're out of grain. And they say this to Joseph. We will sell our property to you, and you give us grain. So they, he does. The next year they come back and he says, listen, we're not going to hide it from you. We're out of grain, and now we have no property. And they say to Joseph, we will sell ourselves to you for grain. And what does Joseph do? He takes a first world country, and he makes it a third world country in 14 years. How does he do it? He withholds revelation. He only tells one person the interpretation of a dream. If he would have told all the Egyptians, Egypt would have been the richest first world country probably in world history. But what did he do? He made them slaves. How did he do it? He withheld information. I'd like to propose to you that Africa, which I work in Africa quite a bit, that Africa is not enslaved. It's not in poverty because uh, it doesn't have resources. Actually, the continent of Africa is the richest continent, they say, on the face of the planet. So what is keeping Africa from prospering? I would, I would propose to you it's revelation. That if, if Joseph could make a country, a, a first world country, a third world country in 14 years through withholding re- revelation, is it possible that revelation is the answer to the planet's problems? And that the knowledge, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord that covers the earth as the waters cover the sea actually release the planets because the planet is groaning under, under a curse and that the revelation of the Christ will release it from the curse. And is it possible that we're on the eve of construction? I think Jesus said this. He said, make disciples of all nations. Isn't it strange that we reduce that to something we can do? So when we talk about the last days, and I understand eschatology, there's a lot of different views, and the more I talk about it, the more I'm getting emails about the different views there are. Um, people want to talk about the signs of the times. And I'm all right with that. It's like, all right, we're in the last days. That started, Peter said that, so that must be right. What place are we in the last times? That's a long timeline. We don't know when that is. 
And some people are like, all the signs of the times have been fulfilled. And I'm like, I'm not sure what signs that you think have been fulfilled. I understand some of them that you're, that you're quoting to me. I, I'm agreeing with those. But Jesus said, John 14, greater works will you do when I go to be with the Father. That hasn't been fulfilled. Jesus commanded us, and he said, make disciples of all nations. All we've done is make disciples in all nations. That hasn't been fulfilled. Jesus said, pray this way, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That hasn't been fulfilled. Well, that's in the millennium. It doesn't say that. See, we don't know how much of heaven we can have on this side of the veil, but we know we can have a whole bunch more than this because Jesus said that. (laughs) Sorry to mess up. And I think that Pharaoh's dreaming again. See, Pharaoh, remember Pharaoh? See, in Acts 2.17, it says, In the last days I'll pour out my spirit upon... I, oh, that hasn't happened yet. You go, well, he didn't really mean all. <laughs> See, the, the Greek word there means some all. <laughs> all of the people he's talking about, See? And we always have some way of reducing it down with our denominational glasses to something that would, that would get Jesus to come back while six billion people don't know him and call that revival. Here's what I'm, what I'm getting at is that I had a point I was making too, the minute. Joseph is dreaming again. Joseph and Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Acts 2.17, in the last days I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Now I understand that old men are going to dream dreams, but I wonder if the old man is dreaming dreams. You know the old man? Pharaoh, the old man, doesn't know God. The old man is dreaming dreams. And what's he dreaming? See, he doesn't know what he's dreaming about, but his answer is in his dream. See, the answer for the world's problem was in his dream. He just didn't know what the dream meant. Now, I'll finish with this. If you want to know what Pharaoh's dreaming, now, obviously, I, I say this at home because people know me really well. You don't know me. So, you know, you, you have to, you'd have to sift this through the fact that I'm a Christian. If you want to know what Pharaoh's dreaming, watch movies. Because Pharaoh's putting his dreams in full color pictures. You have to sift through this. I'm not talking about every movie, whatever. But Pharaoh's dreaming. And he's looking for Daniel's, Joseph's, to tell him what his dreams mean. And when we do, we're going to unlock heaven. I'm just going to pray right now for a spirit of revelation to be on us right now. Holy Spirit, I just pray for a spirit of revelation to be on your people. That we begin to interpret dreams. We begin to have dreams. Begin to have visions. And Lord, that we would become friends with God that know all things. That the answers for the world's problems would begin to come from the wisest, most brilliant, creative people that you've ever placed on this planet. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.